All right, well, we continue on in week six of our summer teaching series that we're calling Storyteller, looking at the parables of Jesus. And so Mark 12, 1 through 12 is where we're going to be today. We're going to bounce around a little bit before we get into the text, uh, but uh, just loving going through the parables together this summer. It's been a really, really good time, and I'm praying that they stick with you and they're stories that you can retell to others yourself. Uh, in middle school, I interviewed my great-uncle Horace. He uh, was a, uh, a soldier in World War II, and I interviewed him for a middle school project. His plane fell from the sky, and he was a prisoner of war. And I remember as he's articulating these stories of the action that he experienced to me, I was just hanging on to every single word. And you know, there's something about stories, that j- they just kind of stick with you, you know? You can remember a story, they grab our attention, uh, they're, they're memorable uh, you can learn lessons from them so as not to repeat bad history. Uh, you can retell them to other people. And really the same is true with the stories of Jesus. We call the stories of Jesus parables. And uh, his stories and his illustrations, however, uh, speak to spiritual truths, speak to uh, eternal truths, things that are, are really of the utmost importance. And so this morning, I, I just want to kind of give you the thesis, the big idea of the story that we just read uh, right out of the gate because we need some time to chew on it so that we don't choke on it. And so let me just kind of give it to you. Uh, and I fully understand that uh, the big idea here may be offensive to some. It may come across harsh to some. It may uh, come across too black and white to other people, but it's biblical, and that which is biblical is intended for our good. And so here's the thesis for this morning. Very simply, in this room today, there are people who either fear God or fear mankind. Think about that. You, in your life, will either fear God or you fear mankind. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 33 says that the fear of man lays a snare, lays a trap. And I want to keep us from that trap or release you from that trap uh, today by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, instantly people will kind of push back on that idea that you either fear God or you Fear man, because, you know, people like to pride themselves, and I ain't afraid of nobody, right? Insert thick Boston accent right there. But you are, right? We're, we're afraid of people. That, you know, that tough guy persona oftentimes proves that you care that other people think you're tough and you got your act together. You don't want people to think that you're weak. And for Christians, a lot of times we say, well, oh, I fear God. I only care about what God has to say about me. I only care about his thoughts towards me. But oftentimes our our lives, as we reflect, kind of say something entirely different. So let's talk about the definition of fear just for a few moments here, just to understand what we're talking about. Now there's there's multiple ways that you can look at fear, multiple ways that that fear takes form today. So there's, of course, there's funny fear. That's, I jump out of the bushes at you in the middle of the night and you freak out. And that's that's funny fear. I make you laugh, I laugh, it's good. Or for my boys, they like to take the little plastic bugs and put them on you know, mom's pillow or under the sheet so that when she opens it up and she flips out and it's awesome. As a kid, I, I found a dead snake and I thought it would just be a great idea to go and, and show my mom who is deathly afraid of snakes. And the way it worked in our house was there was a door that opened up and then the, the sofa, the back of the sofa was right there at the door and she's sitting there watching television. I come in during summer break with my dead snake and I drop it over her face. And I thought it was really funny, but apparently she didn't. Uh, 
funny fear. And then there's, there's thrilling fear. And so, okay, a few, few weeks ago, we bought tickets to go to Six Flags as a family. And uh, it got rained out because we had all these torrential rains here. So I think we're going tomorrow or Tuesday to Six Flags to redeem those tickets. And, you know, that's thrilling fear. When you go on a roller coaster, we like to get scared, right? Some of you, you like a good horror movie, which you're sick in the head. But uh, it's, it's fun for you. Uh, others, you know, another type of fear that we can experience is paralyzing fear. Uh, maybe you had a bad experience with the dentist growing up, and now you're paralyzed, and you won't go to the dentist. And obviously that's not good if you don't go uh, to the dentist. Now, far more difficult than something like that would be, uh, you know, maybe you have the fear of being intimate in a relationship for one of, you know, it could be numerous reasons, like, being hurt or abused as you're younger. And that's paralyzing fear. It inhibits you from growing in depth of relationship with other people. And so you find yourself paralyzed. You struggle with going deep with people. And that's the kind of fear that prevents you from going in a good direction, right? And it's not good, which really leads us to the next kind of fear. And that's what I would call just real simply good fear. There is, there is good fear that's healthy, it's appropriate, it's protective fear. So in my house in central Massachusetts, we had built a house in, in central Massachusetts years ago. Uh, we got a wood stove, and I bought it on Craigslist. It's my, kind of my pride and joy. I cleaned this baby up, and I'm not very handy, but I can paint a wood stove. And I cleaned it up and painted it and had it looking good, this beautiful Vermont Castings wood stove. And my little man, Isaiah, uh, was, you know, two or three at that time, and he would just run around the edge of the stove, and I was so worried about it. And our friends, we had several friends who had wood stove, and they just said, you don't have to worry about it. It's just going to take one time, and you'll learn, and you'll be good. You'll never have to do it again. I said, all right. And sure enough, my son, who was so careless around the stove, tripped one time, burnt his hand, and ever since that point, he had a good, healthy, appropriate, because you should not want to burn yourself, fear of the stove, and it was protective of him for that point uh, forward. And so that's kind of the fear that we're looking at today. It's fear of the Lord. It's this awe, reverent, respectful, humble fear of the Lord. Not this emotion per se, but a real reverence and understanding of the greatness and the power of the Lord. That's what I want to look at uh, today, and it's really best seen in our obedience to him. And so as you start to think about your life and think about what you know of the commands of God and how you're uh, following him, how you're obeying him, um, you start to see where you stand on the spectrum of your fear of the Lord. My my son, he touched the stove and he learned not to touch the stove and now has a healthy fear of the stove. But we can actually learn to obey God and not get burned. We can learn to obey God and, and, and skip that piece of the equation and not incur his wrath, much like with my boys uh, today, we'll go down the forest hills to get on the tee, and there's, you know, the dreaded yellow line, and I say, boys, do not get on the yellow line, and of course, they, they like to test me and see how close they can get. Boys, do not get on the yellow line, because this is a little different than the wood stove. I don't want you to learn this lesson the hard way, right? And so, stern with them and I'm firm with them because I'm, I care for them and if this comes across stern and firm it's because I, I care for you it's motivated by love for you and I don't want you to learn 
the hard way, that we might obey out of an understanding, a healthy, reverent, humble understanding of who God is, and that leads to obedience. And I think it's best displayed, perfectly displayed, in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. There's unity, there's equality, but there's leadership, that God the Father sends Jesus a son who obeys and comes to earth, and Jesus says, I will leave for you a helper, the Holy Spirit, and so he sends out the Holy Spirit, that there's unity and equality, yet there is leadership there, and Jesus perfectly obeys the Father. He comes to earth, and look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 14, 32 through 36. We'll bounce around a a couple chapters around Mark chapter 12 will be today, just to kind of get a little context and understand a little bit. So skip ahead, Mark 14, 32 through 36, and and listen to uh, what happens here. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began, um, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, which means daddy, Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And so what we have here is the looming death of Jesus. It's those final moments before he's arrested and taken to trial, taken then to the cross. And Jesus is sorrowful. He's, he's heavy-hearted here. He knows that on the cross he's going to bear the wrath of God that could be put on mankind. But in our place, Jesus dies so that the wrath of God is satisfied in Jesus, and it says that Jesus leaves Peter and James and John behind. He goes a little further, and as he goes, he falls to the ground. He's just so heavy, and as he falls to the ground, he starts to pray, and he says, Father, Father, remove this cup from me. If you would remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to obey you, but if there's any other way. Now, obviously, Jesus has some major, major fear going on here. He understands how brutally painful and humiliating the cross was, this carefully crafted Roman execution method of the day. And he knew what he was going to experience. He also knew that the wrath of God was going to rest on him. And for the first time in all of eternity, God is going to turn his face from Jesus because he can't look upon our sin. Luke chapter 22 records that Jesus was so distressed that he starts to sweat drops of blood and he in that agony says remove this cup from me he was feeling it he knew it was coming yet in all of that he says however god not what i will but what you will that's what i want to be done and in that history altering eternity shaking moment right there jesus models for us obedience he models for us the fear of the lord that i fear you god i would rather submit my will to you than to my human flesh than to my human desires than to the desires of other people other human requests like when he gets up on the cross and the soldiers start to mock him and say if you're God come on get down he says I would rather obey the Lord because I fear God over mankind and so I will endure the cross and he displays that for us now back to Mark chapter 12 and let's contrast Jesus' display of the, the 
fear of God to the religious leaders here and their display of the fear of man as we get into this parable. So let's read Mark chapter 12, verse 1. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now, let's make sure we get context. Who is the them here? If you want to look back a little bit to chapter 11, verse 27, it's the chief priests, it's the scribes, it's the elders, it's the religious elite of that day. They're threatened by the popularity of Jesus. They're threatened by the fact that he's pushing up against their cultural norm, even though it was prophesied what would happen, that he's really fulfilling what they've been looking for, the Messiah. But their hearts are hardened, and they have their sights set on Jesus. We're going to take him out. And so he speaks to them in parables. Now look at verse uh, 1 through 9. Mark 12, 1 through 9. He says, A man planted... A vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the, wine, for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, let's recap this awesome parable a little bit if we can. Just to kind of look at the, the story. He says, a man plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs a wine press and he builds a tower. And then he leases this property out to some tenants. Anybody in here a tenant? Ever been a tenant? Yes? You rent an apartment or you have rented an apartment. All of us, we live in the city. And so you can kind of relate here. Put yourself in the position of the tenants. You're the tenant of somebody else's property. says he leases it to them and then he heads abroad. Now, this picture would really relate to the religious leaders that he's speaking to of this day. Archaeology tells us that uh, they, they fi- have found actual, uh, from the Herodian era, actual uh, wine presses and houses with walls and towers and wine presses from this era. And so as Jesus is saying this to them, they're really picturing it. So for us, it would be like, hey, imagine your landlord, your tiny little apartment, Right with asbestos and lead, and he would he would connect it to you all the way we feel it here in in Boston. He wants them to 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 get it. And Jesus says the the landlord goes away, and when harvest comes, that the the fruit the vineyard is ready to produce here, that he sends a servant back to the tenants to get his share, but the tenants beat the servant up and send him away without the fruit it's kind of ridiculous right it's kind of kind of ridiculous it's kind of a bold move i mean the the land the wine press all of it, it's it's his it's the it's the landlord i don't know what they were thinking right my my landlord um and my previous apartment would would stop by periodically had the right to it was his property never stopped by to mow the lawn but he stopped by every now and again and these tenants are acting, they're just acting ridiculous, right? It doesn't stop there, though. 
rather than the landlord kicking them out and saying, forget you, you're done, or even calling the, the authorities, the landlord gives them another chance. That's what we call grace. When you get what you don't deserve, he gives them another chance. So what do they do with that other chance? First servant, they beat him. They send him away empty-handed. The second servant comes. They more than beat him up. It says they struck him on the head, which has potential to be a fatal blow. They strike him on the head, and then they don't just send him away at that point. They actually treat him shamefully. They, they humiliate him somehow. But then, again, the landlord exercises what? Grace. He gives him yet another chance, another servant. The third servant comes and this time they kill him they kill the servant you can kind of see the escalation here and then verse five it says they did this with many others too some they beat some they killed but it just got worse and worse and worse i mean this is this is insane this is this is just crazy that the tenants would act this way in the first place and it's also kind of crazy that the landlord wouldn't just evict them right I mean, he wouldn't just evict them. He just keeps giving them grace. I mean, when tenants do things like this, it's grounds for being evicted. So last night, my wife and I had a very late night because it was warm and our windows were open. And uh, the house next door is a multiple you know, family unit. And the landlord lives there with some tenants. And the landlord apparently is on vacation because... There was a party all night long. My neighbors heard it, and it was just absolutely insane. I went to get my car uh, in my back area behind the apartments this morning and went down, and I'd never seen so many open bottles of beer in my entire life just all over the place. I don't know if he's going to be evicted, but listen, a lot of times when the landlord is away, the mice will play, so to speak. My father-in-law is a landlord out in Western Mass, and he just tells me some crazy stories. I mean, he's got all kinds of cool stories. Uh, there was this one story of a woman that uh, he and his wife got to know a little bit, and she just kind of had a rough time, and so they took her into their actual house. Uh, didn't even have an apartment, didn't charge her rent, just put her up in a guest room for a few months. And then with one of his units, he had a basement, he finished the basement for her and actually you know, did it nicely, had a separate entrance for her, and then started to to charge her rent so that she could then become responsible, and he helped her out. It was great. And then, uh, a few months into it, the, the other people in the, the complex started to call him up and say, this place, something's going on. It smells disgusting. What is happening? And sure enough, he went down to knock on the door. She never answered, and then finally he caught her, got the door open, and she could barely open the door because she was a hoarder, and the place was just completely, completely trashed. They had it scrap it all the way down to the studs and start over it was just a mess see a lot of times for us when the landlord so to speak when the lord is seemingly away we kind of do our own thing and pretend like he's not there but he's there and the scriptures make it very clear that he is coming back for his people and i wonder how he will find you will he find you living a life of faith life of faithfulness to him or is he going to find you saying I don't, I don't care acting as if he's not even not even there i mean this is just crazy the grace of the landlord here isn't it you ever thought about the grace of god and how crazy it is that he gives us what he gives us i mean they are beating up 
his employees. They're going beyond that and they are killing his employees when they come to collect rent, so to speak. And then it gets really flabbergasting here. Catch this, it gets a little more crazy when after all of this, knowing their track record, what does the landlord do? He says, aha, which wouldn't have been an aha moment for me. He says, aha, I'll send them my, my son. Surely they will respect my son. But upon the arrival of the son, they start to scheme a little bit, and they start to think, well, what's the son doing here? Maybe the father's dead? I don't know. And they want to kill the son, throw him outside, the vineyard thinking that if we can get rid of the sun, there's no more air and it's our vineyard now. Maybe you're starting to understand the parable a little bit here. The vineyard is a, a common metaphor throughout uh, Old Testament history for Israel, God's uh, chosen people through which he brings the Messiah. Uh, the, the tenants really speak to us uh, a picture of the people and the leaders of Israel, and really even today us, tenants, so to speak. This is God's earth, and we are in it and called to steward it and to exercise dominion over it and be fruitful. And the servants who are mistreated and who are killed really represent the many prophets of God that he sends to Israel throughout Old Testament history. In Isaiah chapter 5, when he's even one of those prophets, he speaks about, in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, prophetically about God destroying his vineyard. Or there's Jeremiah who was mistreated and thrown into a pit. Hosea is mistreated. Joel is mistreated. Amos is uh, mistreated. The message for us is this. He is God. We have to fear him. We have to revere him. We have to respect him. We have to have awe for him. We have to honor him. We have to worship him. We have to be obedient to him. This is all due him. But their response, and the question is, is it our response, is complete disregard for him. No fear of him. I mean, can you imagine your landlord comes and you beat him up? Or he sends a servant and you beat him up? It's kind of an extreme picture because he's trying to make a very firm point here. We'd be locked up, right? Death sentence, right? Certainly evicted. There's no fear in, in this. It's nowhere to be found. And then, of course, sending his own son, knowing their track record, seems kind of crazy. It is crazy that God would send us his son because he crazy loves us and he cares about us and he wants to restore us. He wants to redeem us. He wants us to respond appropriately to his son, Jesus. And so how have you responded in, in, in your past, in your life to Jesus? Have you respected him? Have you said yes to him? I want to follow you. I want to give you what's due, and that is faith. Not that we earn God's favor, but that we just say, I trust you. I trust you. I've got a really bad history. I killed all your other servants. I disregarded them, but you finally send me your son. Shouldn't that be the last straw that just makes us say, wow, he's amazing. I can't believe. I mean, it's just so unbelievable. You think back through the history of Israel and all these prophets. No, no, no. Beat up. Dropped in a pit. And yet he sends Jesus. We should respond appropriately. So Jesus asks these guys in verse 9, 
He says, all right, Pharisees, scribes, you righteous, self-righteous people, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He says, he will finally come after rejecting the son and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to someone else. Do you really think you can act this way and justice not be served? God is perfectly loving and gracious that he would send you his son, but to balance that, he is perfectly just. And we like the idea of the love and the grace of Jesus, but we don't like the idea of justice unless something has been done wrong to us. Then we really want justice to be served. When we think about the fact that we have wronged the Lord, we don't like justice. And so justice is served and they are destroyed and kicked out of the vineyard and it's given to someone else. This applies to us here and now. Here's the, here's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is understanding who he is and what he's done, and what he's doing. Understanding who he is and what he's done. Understanding his person and his work is something we often say, that he is all-powerful, he is incredible, he is amazing, he's more than we could ever ever imagine so much so that you read Revelation chapter 1 and when John sees him, he says, I fall down to the ground as though dead. He says, he is majestic. He's incredible. See the, the person of Jesus. But then we also get to balance that with the work of Jesus. That in that same chapter, John chapter 1, I fall down to the ground as though dead, but he reached out his hand to me. And the work of Jesus is, I am more than you can imagine you fear me, you should revere me, you should have awe and respect and honor of me, but even when you don't, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to die for you. It's this crazy, unimaginable love of Jesus. We call it the gospel. Good news, that's good news. That though we offend him so greatly, he still loves us. It's kind of like a father with his children. I try to be patient with my children. They do things that are unbelievably disrespectful because they're human and they disobey and yet I still, I I want them to follow. I want them to obey. I want them to follow the trajectory of what's best for them. Now, let's read on 10 and 11. Jesus says to them, have you not read the scripture? And he quotes for them Psalm 118, 22 and 23. He says, have you not read the scripture? And these guys are supposed to be experts in the scripture. Haven't you read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We sing songs about Jesus as the cornerstone all the time, don't we? And he's quoting here Psalm 118. And this psalm refers to Israel being this chosen nation, this chosen people of God but people who were often rejected by major world powers of the day. But here, Jesus is now taking that and tweaking it and speaking to himself. And he's saying, listen, you are God's chosen people, and you have experienced rejection in the world, but now you're doing it to me. Shouldn't you sympathize here a little bit? I am God's chosen one, and you are rejecting me, the stone which the builders Rejected has become the cornerstone. Builders exercised poor judgment and rejected this stone as the foundation cornerstone. 
And now you're exercising poor judgment in rejecting me and sending my servants away without listening to the truth. What's, what's the proper response? The proper response would be, Jesus, you're right. I see it. You are the Son of God. You have exercised unbelievable grace towards me. I have been so foolish. Thank you for this fourth chance. For us, 100 chances, 200 chances, million chances. Thank you for all the chances. But did they respond this way? Now, these cats were too prideful. Too prideful. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. So they didn't hear anything that he had just said to them, did they? On the contrary, they were, they were ready to arrest him. They didn't respond appropriately to Jesus. They instead were like, we're going to arrest him. We're going to kill him. But catch this. The very truth of the parable is applied here in what happens with these guys. It says, but. But what? They didn't arrest him, but instead they feared the people. They feared the people. They were into Jesus at that moment, the, the, the crowd. There was a big crowd around Jesus, and they were really excited about Jesus. And so the leader said, we can't arrest him right now because... We're afraid of what they're going to do to us. We're afraid of what the masses are are going to do. Look back uh, just to the previous chapter, 1132. But shall we say for man, they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. So there they are again, being afraid of the people. Back in 1212, they feared the people. Whenever in the Bible something is repeated, Flags should start to go off in your mind. So whether it's the repetition of commands, hey, this is important, do this, live this way, or it's a repetition of statements that you really need to capture this, or it's a repetition of behavior. In this case, it's a repetition of behavior, poor behavior, watch what they're doing here. And God does that in Scripture so that we can see it and capture it, learn from it. And the repetition is fear the people. They're fearing the people. They're afraid of the people. This parable is really speaking to a lack of fear of the Lord and reverence of the Lord and understanding of who God is and instead being afraid of of people. The the fear of man. Again, Proverbs 29.33 is a great verse to memorize. The fear of man lays a snare. Catch yourself throughout the day how often we exercise the, the fear of man. And we've seen in our time together, some positive examples of fear. We've seen some negative examples of fear, the positive being the example of Jesus who obeys the Lord compared to the religious elite who feared man and not God. And so we've seen a little bit of compare and contrast. What I want to do now is I want to get a little more practical and give you some application. And I want it to be practical enough that you can sink your teeth into it and apply it to yourself. And so I want to give you just a few ways, and many more flow out of this, but a few ways that the fear of man can really manifest itself in your life, where you fear man over the Lord. And so let's walk through uh, just a few. First one is the fear of saying unpopular truth. You ever been there? Like you don't want to say something because you're afraid 
what people will think, you know, that this truth is not really all that popular because we fear man. We're, we're too concerned about the opinion of other people rather than declaring the, the truth of God. We, we fear man. And so when those uncomfortable moments come up, we either cower or we run and we hide rather than speaking the truth into a situation. The fear of man is, is also played out as we just saw in, in Mark chapter 11. The, the leaders, uh, Jesus asked the leaders a question, but they're, they're fearful of the people response and the way they respond, even though this is what they believe true. And so they, they didn't answer. They, they feared man. For many Christians, sometimes this means uh, maybe God stirs you to, to, to speak to a family member or, or a neighbor or someone in your workplace, but you're afraid of their response to the, the gospel. Even though they need it, you know that it can be un, unpopular with them. Listen, don't let the fear of man cause you, or keep you rather, from, from saying what's true. Now let me just throw this in there for you, that it doesn't mean that you have to be that guy. You know what I'm talking about? Oh man, I do not want to be that guy. The Christian that no one can stand because he's just an ungracious jerk. You know what I'm talking about? Just like, this is, oh, let me tell you how oh, Jesus is. And they're just jerks about it. I mean, we just saw God's grace, right? And so we need to learn to be gracious. And, and the scriptures offend. We don't have to be the offender, right? The scriptures occasionally will offend people because people don't like to see their need for something. They don't like to see that they need a Lord, a Savior, don't be the offender. Let the scriptures be the offender. You, you speak the truth in love, and it will offend, but not all the time. And so I want to encourage you there. Fear God, not man. I, you know, I face this every single week when I come up here as I'm preparing for what I'm going to say even this week. There's always that temptation of, oh, that might be uncomfortable if I were sitting out there. And I could just soften the truth. That would be the fear of man because I'm concerned about what you think. And if we are going to be missionaries to Boston, as we say we want to be, then we're going to have to be ready to say unpopular truths. God never promises that everybody's going to be happy and smiley with you. Instead, he gives us these great examples of Paul getting beat up and left for dead. So go get him, all right? Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, Whoever's going to be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels don't be ashamed of the lord speak the truth and be concerned about what he thinks and not what other people think here's another common manifestation of the fear of man that we often see is the fear of loving confrontation it kind of falls under this same one here saying unpopular truth you know god calls us to out of love for other people to occasionally speak the truth in their life. Ephesians chapter 4, 14 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So in other words, we want to help people. We want people to help us to grow in Christ's likeness. And so in order for us to do that, there are going to be moments, Christian to Christian, in your life where you need to say something to another person that might be uncomfortable because you know that they're not living in a way that honors the Lord, and you do it because you love them and because you care about the, 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 the image, the reputation of Jesus to this earth, and so you do it, and it's uncomfortable. And again, don't be that guy 
doesn't mean you've got to walk around and be the spiritual hall monitor, right? And stand at the door and like rebuke every person that comes into the church. It's not what we're trying to do. It's not what we're trying to be. But you speak the truth in what? In love, it says. In love. Because I love you and I care for you. And this is just as uncomfortable for me as it is for you. But I, I don't fear man. I fear God, right? I'm not going to be concerned about what you think about me all the time. It's been said that you care more about the friend than the friendship, right? In other words, I care more about you than the friendship, than about what I get from you. See, when you're saying, I'm not going to talk to them about this uncomfortable truth, you're saying, I really want them to like me. (laughs) I really enjoy the friendship, and they might bail on the friendship, so I'm just not going to say anything. See how you're using them when you're unwilling to... Share uncomfortable truth when you're unwilling to lovingly confront sin. Again, I'm an awful dad if I just let my kids play on the yellow line, right? I'm an awful dad. Because I love them, I say, you do not want to go there. I love you. I know you don't like to hear that because it feels nice standing on the little bumpy dots. feels cool. You're like, feel the breeze of the train. But listen, I promise you, it's not good couple more common manifestations of the fear of man on the flip side is the fear of disapproval the fear of disapproval so if we're going to speak the truth in love and give criticism ephesians 4 lovingly we also have to be prepared to receive it you ever been on the receiving end i have it's not fun Back in verse 12, Jesus doesn't just criticize the religious leaders. He does so in in public because they were being prideful and they were leading other people astray. And he he criticizes them. And they didn't respond very well. And how we respond to, call it criticism or rebuke or just exhortation, encouragement, really speaks to our fear of man. Someone's exercising Ephesians chapter 4.15 they want to help you to obey God. Listen, throw aside how well they did it or if they said it at the wrong time or in the wrong way. The point is they're doing it and it's uncomfortable. We should be prepared to respond appropriately. And if we get ticked off, it means we're all concerned about what they think about us rather than saying, okay, there's a truth here or something being said and I need to evaluate my life and see if I can grow from this. And sometimes we respond in anger. Sometimes we respond in self-justification. But, but well, look how great I am. Or we respond in blame shifting. No, no, it's you, not me. We respond in self-destruction and we just let it destroy us. If we didn't get their approval and we just fall apart. You ever been there? Proverbs 13, chapter 1 says this. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So hear instruction. Receive rebuke. Even if it's only 10% true, what can you learn from the 10%? Even if it was 99% them and 1% you, what can you learn from the 1%? What that says and how you respond is, do you fear man or do you fear God? Do you really, are you concerned about what they think about you or are you ultimately concerned about what God thinks about you? And you're just going to say, I'm going to learn from this. Fear disapproval. Here's the last one. Common manifestation of the fear of man is the fear of Failure. Fear of failure. How you handle power 
influence that, that God gives you? Maybe right out of the gate you say, I don't have any. I don't have any power. I don't have any influence. Well, we all do to some degree, right? God has given us places where we have some kind of influence, some kind of power, the power of the Holy Spirit where we can make an impact. And some of us, maybe we're just not even using that influence, that power that God has given us because we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of looking like an idiot. We're afraid of people not responding the way we want them to when we try to exercise that. We fail to, to seize those moments because we're afraid of what it looks like if we, if we fail. Being a Christian also means you have the freedom to fail sometimes because it's not about what they think about me. It's about I was going after it full on for the Lord and I'm, I'm really concerned about what he thinks about me. Think about the Apostle Paul. He says, I will be a fool for Christ because I don't care about what they think. doesn't mean I'm a jerk to people. I just don't care about what they think. Ultimately, I care about what God thinks. And so he was freed up for greatness, wasn't he? And he becomes the greatest missionary of all time other than Jesus. He was freed up for that because he didn't fear failing. He didn't say, I'm not going to go in there because they might beat me up and leave me for dead. They beat him up and they left him for dead. But guess what? God continued to do a great work. It wasn't, I, I fear that I'm going to let somebody down if I really take this opportunity and, and seize it. I, I fear that I'm not going to perform well because when you're doing that, you're really, again, you're concerned about others. You fear man and not God. And so when you fear God, you're really freed up, aren't you? You see how you're freed up? Because the fear of man is what? It's a snare. It's a trap. You can't really do much because you're just so concerned with what people think about you. And I'm, I'm sitting here saying, I'm not, just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not just the president. I'm a member, right? Like, this is me too, you know, the hair club for men deal. I'm, I'm like, I'm a member of this. I, I struggle with this. The fear of man is something that I think we're going to face just about every day. Every day. I pray that God will just constantly just stir you. Like, that was fear of man. That was the fear of man. That was the fear of man. Until you begin to grow to the place where you just, you're concerned about what God thinks. And you're not trapped. You're not ensnared by being just consumed with what other people think. And our social media doesn't really help that, does it? I'm not, like, preaching, (laughs) get off Facebook today, you know, like they did a decade ago, burn your CDs, right? (laughs) I'm talking about, listen, we shape our social media to make ourselves look good, don't we? I'm going to join the, I can, for, you know, the, the, the Facebook page, Men Who Bench Press 450 Plus. I joined that page, right? So everybody thinks I joined. You know, I can bench it, right? That's a lie, right? We like to shape, you can like craft your image on Facebook, right? And on Twitter and all these things. It's ridiculous, right? Make people think that we're something that we're not because we, we're concerned about what other people think. It's a trap. And God says, listen, be concerned about what I think. Gives you the freedom to speak truth that's not popular. Gives you the freedom to be rejected at times. Because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting who? Jesus, right? We have freedom. That's what God wants for us. Because the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. And it holds you back. God is a God of freedom. And the truth shall set you free. 
And so I'm praying that we leave today freed up, that we look at the, the religious leaders who feared the people and the tenants who really just wanted to look out for themselves. They had no fear of God. They had no fear of the landlord who, it's all his, it's all his. I pray that God would help us to grow. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for our time that we have together, Lord. Thank you that you're about our freedom. That we're all in bondage. In sin. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, that you ransomed us from that bondage, that entrapment, by serving to the point of death, death on a cross. Now we killed the Son, but we can be made free because of the, the death of the Son, and because of your grace time and time and time again. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here today who has not given their heart fully to Jesus, Lord, that today they would turn from sin and turn to you. Not that they're going to go live perfectly, as none of us do, but they're going to trust in Jesus who lived perfectly and who died for their sin. And they're just going to give him their heart, receive that gift of grace today. God, I also pray for everyone else in the room today who is living in bondage, the fear of man, so consumed with what other people think and how that plays out in so many different ways. Lord, I pray that they would be freed from that snare, that trap, and they would be free just to be concerned with what you think. So I commit them to you, Lord. Help us to be a people who are so centered on the Lord, not on the things of the world and that we find freedom and hope and joy and worship flowing out of that. We pray these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.